Hub, and Spoke. Audio Collective. I can't help but think I'm a bit of a hypocrite. You see, this episode is going to be about the movie Jaws, which means it can't help but be about how strangely relevant this now 45-year-old film has become to our current moment. Which means this also can't help but be in some ways an episode about how the world has been transformed by COVID. We won't spend too much time on it, I swear. We'll get to some New England history and tangents about relatively obscure 60s films very soon. But it would be weird to talk about Jaws right now without talking a bit about public health, government negligence, and, oh yeah, staying as far away from things that can kill you as possible, which just means giving up your beach holiday and staying inside he says, having just been to Cape Cod for a beach holiday in the days leading up to July 4th. Literally the thing that Jaws is about. Here I am, infant son, making his first splashes <laughs> and splashes in ocean water, wife holding the camera. Pat's drying out the water. And no matter how many precautions we've taken. <laughs> oh, and the sand. And we're out there completely alone on this private beach. No one is anywhere near us. It does help to have a son who wakes you up hours before human people tend to like waking up. It certainly feels like we're part of the problem, which we are. I guess this is an episode about the problem more than it is about me. And we're talking about Jaws. We've all been talking about Jaws, memeing it, tweeting about the mayor and the crowded beaches, because it so perfectly nails the problem. Early on in the pandemic spread across the globe, in the days immediately after Tom Hanks announced he had COVID and it all became very real, it seemed like everyone was watching the Steven Soderbergh film Contagion as one, like we were all engaging in some sort of cathartic mass exorcism of the disease. And then something weird happened. As the months passed and it became clear that the enduring story of 2020 wouldn't be one of vectors and vaccines, but one about all the ways that public safety and economic concerns butt heads in a time of crisis, the discourse got a bit less literal, and Jaws seemed to eclipse Contagion as the movie people were most likely to use to interpret our moment. Which makes sense. Jaws is a film about a supposedly simple solution to people dying that gets more complicated than it needs to be. The assailant is a shark. Well, okay, that's easy. Don't go in the water. The shark can't get us up here. The solution is so simple that Chief Brody comes up with it immediately, as soon as he's told there's been a shark attack by the coroner. Where do we keep the beach clothes signs? We never had any. No? Which is why it's so aggravating when more people die. It's obviously not as straightforward as that for COVID-19, for all sorts of socioeconomic reasons that make it so that many can't afford to not be put in harm's way but zoomed out from a local scale in Jaws to a global scale for our real, very scary predicament, the math still largely holds when it comes to flattening the curve and saving lives. Don't go where the danger is, stay inside, take serious precautions if you have to venture out, and the monster can't get us. We've been shouting the same thing at our TVs this summer when we're watching the news that we've been shouting at them when we're watching Jaws for decades. Don't go to the beach! You don't need to! Stay home! And when people still go, and remember, I took a beach holiday in July, so zero legs to stand on, we shout, close them! Why won't you close them? Which brings us to Amity Island Mayor Larry Vaughn, the colorfully, some might say garishly, blazered man who wouldn't close the beaches. As Stuart Heritage pointed out in The Guardian, without him, Jaws would simply be a film about a policeman who spots a shark imposes a stringent set of beachside social distancing rules and then kills the shark. 
And it brings us to the man Heritage was making fun of by way of critiquing Jaws, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who back in March, before he was hospitalized for COVID, was still intent on not shutting down businesses in the name of building up herd immunity, which ran contrary to what most scientists would have advised at the time. Now, of course, I could be focusing on any number of US governors, senators, or presidents here, or many other world leaders. But, of course, none of them had once stated in a public speech that they believe the real hero of Jaws is the mayor. Larry, the summer is over. You're the mayor of Shark City. These people think you want the beaches open. I, I, was, I, was, I was acting in the, in the town's best interest. Which, I mean, let's get this out of the way. He is not. There is no interpretation in which he is. And the UK press had a field day when they unearthed that quote from a speech given by then-MP Boris Johnson in 2006. Even though Johnson sort of immediately admitted that the mayor was in fact wrong, but maybe he was right in spirit? The real hero of Jaws is the mayor. A gigantic fish is eating all your constituents and he decides to keep the beaches open. Okay, in that instance he was actually wrong, but in principle we need more politicians like the mayor. We are often the only obstacle against all the nonsense, which is really a massive conspiracy against the taxpayer. There's both very little worth unpacking there, because when you play the conspiracy game and guess wrong, you end up being an obstacle all right, an obstacle to public safety. And at the same time, there's enough going on under the surface to sink our teeth into and get us through a whole episode. So let's go right ahead and take the plunge. This is Iconography, and I'm Charles Gustine, your guide on this tour of icons, real and imagined. So yeah, I've been away for a while. It's been a few months. How have you all been doing? Not great? Yeah. Let me tell you about what I've been doing since you last heard from me. I've been working from home, a lot of time with an infant cradled in one arm. We've been cooking a lot more. And uh, we're up at 4 a.m. a lot. We have the occasional Zoom or portal call with family and friends. That's pretty much it. Oh, and I have been watching a whole hell of a lot of movies. Not new movies, obviously, since most of those have been delayed. No, dozens upon dozens of old movies on the Criterion channel that I'd never seen before. What I am about to say is not an ad for Criterion Channel, and that Criterion is in no way expecting me to say anything nice about their streaming service and doesn't care if I do. But I do want to tell you that my sanity is brought to you by the Criterion Channel. The movie offerings on there have gotten me through many a bleary-eyed morning bottle feeding. As a bonus, I'll tell you what my top five favorite Criterion Channel discoveries have been at the end of the episode. I haven't been completely faithful. I took a little time off from Criterion to watch Jaws, revisiting the movie for the first time in 15 years or so. I wanted to see if there might be an episode lurking somewhere in those waters, so I rented Jaws on June 20th, its 45th birthday, 45 years after its then-rare wide opening on 464 screens that raked in a then-record opening weekend of 7 mil. And I can say, having taken meticulous notes and undertaken a fair amount of research, that yes, all those people in 1975 were right. Jaws is very, very good. 
I can try to put that in some perspective because I've been absolutely inundated with so many Stone Cold classics over the past few months. Even with all the masterworks that I've encountered from luminaries like Truffaut and Godard, Hawks and Weiler, Scorsese and Lynch, I think Jaws is easily the best film I've watched this summer. It's real good. <laughs> you probably don't need me to tell you that. I'm sure you've heard the Gospel of Jaws somewhere before, especially in its anniversary year. Maybe that's presumptuous, though. Let's take a moment to recap the path Jaws took on its way to becoming a cultural milestone. Before it became Hollywood's first summer blockbuster in 1975, Jaws was a best-selling novel in 1974. So, like, barely before. Written by first-time novelist Peter Benchley, Jaws was one of those books with a strong enough conceit, Great White Shark terrorizes beachgoers in a resort community, that it inspired a feeding frenzy for the movie rights before the book was even published. In spite of the fact that it was written by a completely untested author, Jaws was set to become a universal picture before the story of Chief Brody, Matt Hooper the oceanographer, and the surly shark hunter Quint had even made its way to the public to be market tested. The film was handed to a similarly unproven director, Steven Spielberg, in the last moments where he would ever be able to be called unproven. Already attached to direct Jaws for over eight months when the novel was published in February of 1974, Spielberg was 27, a wonderkind who had been interning on the Universal lot since he was a teenager, and who had already directed a whole bunch of television, including a TV movie, Duel, that had caught the eyes of producers Richard Dizanek and David Brown. Jaws would become their second collaboration together after Sugarland Express, which would be coming out in one month, March 30th, 1974. Risky bets all of them, and they all paid off, including the then-rare wide-release strategy. Jaws became the highest-grossing film of all time, a title it held for two years, until Spielberg's buddy George Lucas knocked him from his perch with Star Wars. Jaws was more than a phenomenon. It was a cultural juggernaut. Jaws needs no introduction, film historian Peter Biskin wrote in the immediate wake of the summer of Jaws. It is now six months since it was unleashed on an unsuspecting public, and it is still consuming more money than its eponym gobbles down human dinners. In the first ten days of exhibition, it broke the box office of Godfather 1, taking in an estimated $21 million. Audiences see it, return, and return again to be thrilled by the 25-foot shark, the great marine garbage disposal that eats its way through the imaginary beach colony of Amity, Long Island. <clears throat> about that last bit. Amity had indeed been a Long Island enclave in Peter Benchley's novel, and Biskind carries that over to his analysis of the film, which is interesting because, as we will thoroughly dissect in this episode of Iconography, Spielberg makes it fairly clear that Amity Island is in Massachusetts, hanging out off the southern coast within varying distance of Sister Island's Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard, which is where the film was shot. Jaws the movie is broken pretty cleanly into two parts, the first half on Amity Island as the shark picks off swimmers, the second part out on Quint's boat the Orca as our ragtag team of heroes tries to track and kill the Great White. The Orca sets out from Amity at pretty much the midpoint of the movie, and well, it never returns. So too will this consideration of Jaws as a New England icon be broken cleanly into two episodes. The first, interpreting Amity Island as a stand-in for Martha's Vineyard, and the second, interpreting Quint as a modern Ahab figure. I do have to confess that after I revisited Jaws, I did have to ask myself if there was really an iconography episode here, let alone two. Sure, the film is iconic, and it takes place in New England, more on that soon, 
But what could I possibly say about Jaws that hasn't already been dissected and meticulously cataloged like the tiger shark Hooper and Brody cut into after Alex Kintner's death? I didn't want to do another thing about how the production was a mess and Bruce the mechanical shark didn't work and they were making things up as they went along to finish the damn thing and lo and behold, it turned out great. There are literally entire podcasts about that story. I didn't want to be the latest in a long line of people to wade into how Jaws impacted the real world, with the masses thinking twice about setting foot in the water, and with sharks coming more prominently into the public consciousness, which has not worked out well for sharks. Though they did get a week on TV, which is a nice consolation prize, I guess. And yeah, I didn't want to do an episode straight up confirming what a lot of people much cleverer than I am have already noted, that the parallels between what Peter Benchley and Steven Spielberg envisioned back in the mid-70s and what we're living through today in this horrible, horrible summer of 2020 are startling. I think I got most of that out of my system earlier. So knowing I wasn't going to focus on those things, I needed to find something that gave me that familiar itch that tells me I need to dive deeper. So as I'm browsing the Wikipedia page, yeah, I'm basic, I start with the Wikipedia page, I noticed this one line about how they settled on Martha's Vineyard as a stand-in for Amity Island from one of the film's producers, David Brown. And it intrigues me just enough that I follow the footnote trail to see the full quote in a book called Movie Moguls Speak. We went all over the country to find the right spot. We needed a vacation area that was lower middle class enough so that an appearance of a shark would destroy the tourist business. In Southampton, they would pay you to have a shark keep the tourists out, so that was not going to be the spot. We searched eastern Long Island and found it was too grand, so we settled on Martha's Vineyard. Seems like a pretty innocuous sentiment. Location scouting. Sometimes things work, sometimes they don't. But I just read and reread that going, am I missing something? Lower middle class... But this went against the things I thought I knew about Martha's Vineyard, without having been there or really ever given it too much thought. Namely, that it was a rich person's playground, an island cram-jammed with summering millionaires. That's pretty much the only thing I knew about it. Had Martha's Vineyard changed that much since the 70s when they scouted it as a location for Jaws? Or had that aspect actually not changed, and there was this entire side of Martha's Vineyard that just doesn't get talked about? What could Jaws tell me about this misunderstood aspect of the vineyard? And could learning a bit more about Martha's Vineyard teach me something about Jaws? All of those answers, and more, on this episode of Iconography. Part 1. Amity, as you know, means friendship. Jaws opens, famously, on a beach at dawn, with two shaggy-haired college kids, Chrissy and Tom making eyes at each other, rather than paying attention to everyone else around the bonfire. They run over the dunes to the shore, Chrissy shedding her clothes as she passes the wobbly sand fence. Where are we going? Swimming! And what happens next is the stuff of legend. Skinny dipping at sunrise. Something stalking below. A struggle. And then... Silence a buoy bobbing a few hundred yards from the shore. So far, we could be anywhere, really. The Carolinas, California maybe, Jersey Shore, Long Island, yeah. So, confession time. If you had asked me where Jaws was set, where Amity was supposed to be, in those years between seeing Jaws as a preteen and, I don't know, like, last year when I was researching things for Iconography Season 2, 
I would have probably shrugged and said, California? I blame Universal Studios for this. Um, I grew up in Florida, which means I was a frequent guest at Universal Studios Orlando, among other Orlando theme park offerings. And at Universal, the part of the park that was furthest from the entrance was called San Francisco slash Amity on the park maps. And next to Amity, there was a big old shark rearing up out of the water to show you where you could hop on Amity boat tours and experience Jaws the ride. When you walked back there, the San Francisco set with the Little Fisherman's Wharf food area and the ride with the earthquake in the mission-style building sort of melted into the Amity area, which was a carney-filled midway all done up in white. So I guess I just assumed, having not watched the film in a long time, that Jaws took place near San Francisco. And I know that's not how theme park design works, that you can jump around literally anywhere by taking a few steps, including into a Dr. Seuss book. But the map tricked me. (laughs) Different worlds get called out separately on maps. Why didn't San Francisco and fictional Massachusetts get their own labels? I think maybe they just wanted to not use another color? Whatever the case, Universal tricked me into thinking one of their most famous movies took place on the wrong coast. Which kind of speaks to the fact that even though Jaws is an extraordinarily iconic movie, it's not an especially iconic New England movie. What I mean by that is, people who have not seen The Departed, but know literally anything about The Departed, know one thing. The Departed takes place in Boston. Jaws isn't that way. It's a bit of a stealth New England movie. It must be in the backyard. In Amity, you say yad. They're in the yard, not too far from the car. How's that? Like you're from New York. It is worth asking, why did Amity move? Is it really because Long Island was too hoity-toity to pass as economically vulnerable, as we heard earlier? For an answer, we turn to a beautiful doorstopper of a coffee table book, Jaws, Memories from Martha's Vineyard, written by Vineyard local Matt Taylor. There, we get a more detailed version of the Jaws location scouting story from production designer Joe Alves. It's a little after Thanksgiving in 1973. Peter Benchley's book Jaws isn't even out yet, it's not coming out until February, and Joe Alves is already looking for a place for Steven Spielberg to film a movie, and he is in uncharted waters. Both Stephen and I agreed early on that for the sake of authenticity, Jaws should be filmed on location, not on some studio lake. Alves is scouting for a movie that will film on the open ocean, which is unprecedented. Before Jaws, Hollywood films shot ocean scenes on Hollywood backlots and tanks with projected backgrounds, which is something I'm sure Spielberg and Alves will end up wishing they defaulted to a few times during shooting when Bruce, the mechanical shark, which had worked perfectly well during trials in tanks back in California, broke down and malfunctioned over and over and over again in the salt water. But that's still a few months away as Alves settles in to meet with not-yet-published novelist Peter Benchley in New York City. Peter told me he had written Jaws with various places in mind. Some of it was based on the old fishermen from Montauk, and there was also a little sprinkling of Sag Harbor in Covington, Rhode Island. I had maps of the area showing the coastline with tides and depth charts, and so as he was speaking, I traced my finger along the map. The depth charts were important because the shooting location wouldn't just need to have the right look and feel to stand in for rustic amity. I was looking for places that had a certain look, but that would also be compatible for the shark. 
We needed some place with a smooth, sandy bottom with a depth of 30 feet and a tide variation of about 2 feet. If the tide went too low, it would expose all of the shark's mechanics, and if it went too high, we'd never be able to get it out of the water. Screenwriter Carl Gottlieb, who took over the Jaws script after Peter Benchley's third draft, adds a bit more color in the Jaws log, his book about the making of Jaws. Jaws has some unique location requirements. An obvious summer resort town that derives 90% of its income in the 12-week summer season, full of picturesque and photogenic features. So far, easy. Now recall the 12-ton steel submersible platform for the shark. This must operate in 25 to 35 feet of water with a level sandy bottom. Now you've got some limits to work within. But wait! In addition, there must be a sheltered bay in the lee of an island so that the camera can point out to 180 degrees of unbroken horizon and still be protected from vagaries of wind and weather and mid-ocean swells. On top of this, he adds the title range and the fact that the location needs to be within 45 minutes of a major hotel complex that can handle the cast and crew. Fast forward a few weeks into mid-December, and everywhere Alves had been since leaving Peter Benchley in New York City was failing the test, including the places Benchley had cited as inspiration, starting with Long Island. Gottlieb says, So Joe begins scouting Long Island, cruising every town from the Hamptons out to Montauk Point. It's not right. So he starts in with his coast and geodetic survey charts and marine surveys and begins to look at the New England coast, working down Cape Cod and Rhode Island, hitting every closed-for-the-winter clam bar and Captain Shanty there. No luck. It wasn't necessarily because they were too tony to pass as lower middle class, but because the tidal range was way too wide and the ocean bottom was rocky and uneven all across New England. No go for a mechanical shark. But there was one more suggestion from Benchley left to try. Alves remembers, He also suggested that I look at Nantucket, where he spent summers and where his parents lived. He thought it might make a nice location and mentioned that while I was there I could have lunch with his mother, who he said made great cucumber and cheese sandwiches. And so, on December 16th, 1973, Joe Alves is in his rental car aboard the ferry Nashan, leaving Woods Hole, Massachusetts, two hours away from Nantucket where he might meet up with Peter Benchley's parents for some finger sandwiches. And before fate intervenes and a snow flurry sends him back to shore for a fateful trip to Martha's Vineyard, I really think we ought to finish the journey Alves never did and meet with the Benchleys on Nantucket. Part 2 Yeah, I'm an islander. You're an islander? Peter Benchley was 33 years old when his book about a rogue shark became a bestseller in the spring and summer of 1974. He'd spent a great deal of those 33 years on Nantucket, summering with his family as a child, and then, when he got older, visiting his parents Marjorie and Nathaniel, who took up residence there permanently. And in those 33 years, he'd visited Martha's Vineyard, the island next door, for, at most, three days. That changed when he came to the island for the filming of Jaws, where he shot a cameo as a newscaster. But in recent days, a cloud has appeared on the horizon of this beautiful resort community. A cloud in the shape of a killer shark and where he was the frontman for a promotional video where he interviewed people involved in turning his book into a movie. Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, an island off the eastern seaboard, beautiful, picturesque, and about to be disguised as the fictional town of Amity. There was something nicely ironic about making the film on Martha's Vineyard. I grew up on a neighboring island, Nantucket, where I first encountered sharks. 
We used to fish for swordfish, but they were rare, and we caught sharks instead. Benchley hadn't been nearly as willing to equate the two islands when Joe Alves had asked him if he should visit Martha's Vineyard as well as Nantucket as part of his location scouting trip for Jaws. I asked Peter what he knew about Martha's Vineyard. He said that I probably wouldn't find anything of interest over there, but he had never been. Apparently locals from one island don't ever go to the other, which I thought was amazing. Apparently this isn't that uncommon. In 2007, Martha's Vineyard magazine ran an article about the phenomenon observing that travel between the two islands is pretty much limited to when the high school football teams play each other. As the ferry slipped past Cape Poglight, Cindy West of Vineyard Haven sipped coffee and squinted toward the horizon from the starboard deck. She's lived on the vineyard for 25 years. I've never been to Nantucket before, said the Martha's Vineyard public charter school teacher. I don't know why. Cindy was in good company. Many of her fellow passengers had never been to Nantucket, except maybe to play school sports or to root for the teams. One of the most striking traits shared by many vineyarders and Nantucketers is a resounding lack of interest in each other's island. People who live on isolated bits of Ice Age rubble do not yearn to discover the isolated bit of Ice Age rubble next door. In 1970, National Geographic published a story that looked at things from the Nantucket point of view, titled Life's Tempo on Nantucket. According to the piece, a Nantucketer takes pride above all else in their isolation. He guards nothing more jealously than his identity as an islander. He refers to the mainland as America, and if you were born in America, you will always be an off-islander to him. A Nantucket student asked to write a description of Alaska placed it in the northwest corner of off-island. Even Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket's neighbor to the west, is regarded as a pseudo-island. After all, if you can actually see it from Woods Hole, why, you might as well be in America. The writer behind Life's Tempo in Nantucket? None other than a pre-Jaws Peter Benchley. And so we come to it. Islander and Off-Islander. A dichotomy familiar to fans of Jaws because the people of Amity keep bringing it up. Making it clear that they see our heroes, Chief Brody and Matt Hooper, as outsiders. Interlopers? Possibly agitators? Well, they bring in a... All I want to know, I just want to know one simple thing. When do I get to become an islander? Ellen, never, never. You're not born here, you're not an islander. Maybe That's it. To Ellen Brody's frustration, the Brodies will never be islanders. Never. That's it. This isn't an invention of the Jaws screenplay. In his National Geographic piece about Nantucket, Benchley relays one amusing story he hears from a nonagenarian woman about an old friend of hers. He was brought here by his parents when he was three months old. But whenever he saw his name in the paper, it was always prefaced by the words off-islander. He wasn't about to take that treatment without a fight, so he did a little research into the newspaper editor's family and found just the weapon he needed. He saw that the editor's wife had left the island to have her first child. Complications were feared, so she went to a mainland hospital and came back the next week. Well, I tell you, when that editor learned that someone might spill the beans about his son's true place of birth, he never again called my friend an off-islander. On my rewatch of Jaws, I was struck by how much this push and pull between being from the island and being from the mainland permeates the story. Not just the atmosphere, but the plot. Almost from the word go, Chief Brody is getting asked if he's an islander by the college kid who reports Chrissy is missing. The folks were born here, right? Yeah, I'm an islander. They moved off and my dad retired. You're an islander? The kid no. is an islander because he was born on the island, even though both he and his parents have left. Brody is not, even though he lives on the island and serves as its chief of police. 
Interestingly, this never comes up in Benchley's book, at least the idea of islanders and off-islanders never does. Because the novel takes place in a community that swells with visitors and part-time residents in the summer, there is definitely an aspect of being from Amity and not from Amity. In the novel, Brody is actually a local, and his wife is a one-time summerer who has settled down and has an affair with fellow outsider Matt Hooper as a way to remember her old life. There's a lot that was cut from the book, including the mafia controlling the mayor. And look, the point is, uh, in the book, the divides are much more class-based, and the film, by moving the action to an island that you can only reach by ferry, adds a profound sense of isolation and, accordingly, a very Nantucket-like sense of insularity to the way that Amity Island operates. Honestly, Brody seems to be pretty relieved to be policing an island where the worst crimes are the crimes against fashion committed by the mayor. Listen, Chief... Be careful, will you? In this town? Hey! At one point, drunk on wine and facing his fear of water head-on, Brody opens up to Hooper about why he came to Amity in the first place. I'm telling you, the crime rate in New York will kill you. There's so many problems, you never feel like you're accomplishing anything. Violence, rip-offs, muggings. Kids can't leave the house, you gotta walk them to school. But in Amity, one man can make a difference. In 25 years, there's never been a shooting or a murder in this town. And yet, you also definitely get a sense that Brody can't believe how petty the concerns of the Islanders are, how removed they are from the real world. You get that sense because Spielberg gives it to you, as he does in the famous shot where Brody tries to keep an eye on the water after the mayor's asked him to keep the shark attack quiet. And a town councilman gets up in his face to talk about barking cats. Hey, Marty, I know you got a lot of problems down And cinematographer Bill Butler uses a split diopter lens to split our focus, like Chief Brody's focus is split. One eye is intently watching the ocean. The other is on this guy right up in our face. And we see both equally clearly, which is disorienting. The obvious thing to do here as a director would be to turn this guy's complaints into Charlie Brown wah, 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 and put him out of focus to show we don't care what he's saying. But instead, Spielberg makes us reckon with the fact that Brody has to worry about a shark and deal with this Islander nonsense at the same time. Which, I mean, the, the Islander nonsense is really funny. Brody comes into his office after they find Chrissy's body and it's just a deluge of trivial stuff. And he leaves police headquarters after he gets the coroner's report, and there's more, just this avalanche of banal complaints. There's a damn truck with a hamster face on it, smack in front of my store. Just have him fill out the form. Just fill it out. Here's what I jotted down when I was watching this scene back in June. Karateing the picket fences. Interesting contrast to the Russians were coming. Maybe someone out there knows where I'm going with this. More likely 0% of you do, so let's go on this journey together. I promised a tangent about a relatively obscure 60s film at the top of the episode, and I promise it will be a fulfilling one. The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming is a film I'd watched for the first time back in the early part of the year, in the pre-quarantine times. The 1966 comedy is notable for a few reasons. One, it 
is Academy Award winner Alan Arkin's first screen performance. Two, in addition to getting Arkin a Best Actor nomination for his role as a Russian naval lieutenant, The Russians Are Coming is one of the rare broad comedies to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Three, the film's main characters are Russian, are played by actors who actually speak Russian, and are lovingly, sympathetically drawn, which, if you're wondering if that was rare in the mid-1960s, yes, that was rare in the mid-1960s. And four, it's really freaking funny. And it's notable for one other reason I'll get back to in a moment. In The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, a Russian sub runs aground when it gets too close to Gloucester Island. Not to be confused with the real Gloucester, Massachusetts, which is on the mainland. This Gloucester Island is a clear stand-in for Nantucket, right down to the clapboard-shingled summer house five miles outside town where a playwright from New York City, Walt, played by Carl Reiner, R.I.P., has brought his family for the summer. The small band of Russians who are sent ashore to procure a boat that can get the sub unstuck run into the vacationing family. Ask them if they're Russian! Peter, be quiet. Very clever, never mind. Very, very clever to see that my friend and I are foreigners here, but of course not the Russians, naturally. What would the Russians be doing on the United States of America Island? With so many animosities and hatreds between these two countries, it is too funny an idea, is it not? <laughs> no, we... We are, of course, Norwegians. A hostage situation ensues that is about as adorable as hostage situations get. And this begins a very long day for Walt Whitaker, who tries to tell everyone in town what's really going on, but can't get a word in edgewise. He's not from Gloucester Island. What does he know anyway? Say, aren't you that uh, Whitaker fellow from out there at Duckhead Point? My brother was out to your house this last month cleaning out that clogged drain of yours. Yeah, well, well, look, but I want to report that nine Russian sailors came to my house. You mean their Navy's landing, too? Uh-huh. Oh, my God. My God. The Russians sneak into town, gag the old postmistress, Muriel Everett, and they mount her chair on the wall, apologize sincerely in Russian, and take her car. But not before she gets the word out about Russians on the island. Russians? Call Chief Maddox. The Russians have landed. They're here. Do you hear? The Russians in West Village. And I'm being attacked! The local police force on Gloucester Island appears to have never had to deal with any crime more severe than vandalism. This is the kind of town where Muriel Everett's history with the police department involves reporting a peeping Tom, which turned out to be a horse. As calls go out to the chief's deputies, they all flail frantically for guns they've probably never had to take out of their drawers. Not for Maxwell speaking. Chief Maddox wants you down at the station right away and bring your gun. That's an order. Bring, bring my gun? Gun? Well, what's happening? I mean, what's, what's going on? Russians. Russians? Russian parachutists. Muriel Everett. A Russian parachute is on Gloucester Island? But in spite of the novelty, the police chief keeps a level head. Should I call the Coast Guard? No, Alice, nobody. Just let's find out what's going on first, huh? If there is something going on before we start spreading around a lot of alarms. Okay, chief. Which is good, because wild rumors spread about an invasion, about the Russians taking the airport. Russians, they've landed out there at- Russians? Holy jumping! They must be coming in at the airport. It's the only way. A gaggle of war vets get out their weapons and form a militia. So many hijinks ensue. There's people all over the streets already. They're running around, yelling, screaming. That's right, Chief. Some of them even got guns. If we can just keep this thing quiet. Quiet. Look, Ed Spooner. He's carrying a 22. There's Joe Munsell. 
He's got a shotgun. It's a delightful movie, and it pairs really delightfully with Jaws. In both films, a threat emerges from the deep, surfacing at a beautiful remote beach at sunrise, and whips the people of an isolated island community into a panic. The chief of police tries in vain to maintain order, but the islanders want to handle things in their own way, motoring around in mobs, guns half-cocked. The image of a floating militia in Jaws tossing dynamite haphazardly into the water is not dissimilar from the roving band of veterans on the hunt for Russians. Oh, and when it comes to islanders and off-islanders, anyone who isn't from the island is kept at an arm's length. I don't think one of you are familiar with our problems. Uh, I think that I am familiar with the fact that you are going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you on the ass. Of course, the films differ in how panic in the face of an external threat manifests. In The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, the people of Gloucester Island, as the doubly acclaimed title implies, dramatically overreact to a group of stranded and very sweet Russian sailors sneaking around the island. While in Jaws, the people of Amity Island dramatically underreact to a deadly but thoroughly solvable problem, which makes the problem much worse. But watch back to back, the two films act as intriguing variations on a theme, the push and pull between islanders and off-islanders in a time of crisis. So that's why I scrawled something about the Russians are coming while I was revisiting Jaws. It was kind of a note to self, in case there was any value in bringing up the earlier comedy in the episode. I just thought they were interesting touch points, both these crypto Cape Cod capers from around the same time that had a similar comedic take on New England resort island life. I, I didn't think it would go much of anywhere, honestly. Clearly, since I just told you a bunch about the movie, it went somewhere. Uh, so where? So a few days after watching Jaws, I'm mindlessly clicking around Jaws-related pages on my phone before bedtime, and I get intrigued by a sentence about Peter Benchley's father, the one who lives on Nantucket and whose wife makes incredible cucumber and cream cheese sandwiches. It says he was a writer. Interesting, I think. I wonder if Nathaniel Benchley's written anything I've heard of. As it turns out, Peter Benchley was the scion of a notable literary dynasty that dated back to his grandfather, Nathaniel's father, Robert Benchley. A third Benchley has a whale of a novel, is how People Magazine introduced Peter to the world in a profile that came hot on the heels of the release of the novel Jaws in April 1974. The piece opened by noting that Peter, who was tall, slender, and movie star handsome, with eyes like the deep blue sea, did not inherit the resemblance to a benevolent sea lion which distinguished his famous grandfather, humorist Robert Benchley, and which, slightly refined, was bestowed on Peter's father, writer Nathaniel Benchley. Instead, Peter is the fortunate legatee of the writing dynasty's quirky wit and knack for spinning a devilishly good tale. Robert had been one of the core members of the famed Algonquin Roundtable in 1920s New York, along with fellow wits like Dorothy Parker and Harold Ross. He even went on to have a notable, and notably unlikely, career in Hollywood, a beloved big screen star during the last decade of his life. I'd actually seen Robert Benchley and loved him in a movie I caught on the Criterion Channel, You'll Never Get Rich, starring Fred Astaire and Rita Hayworth not realizing until months later who he was related to. Nathaniel Benchley, on the other hand, had been a prolific writer, but had not written anything that I'd heard of. There was one title in Nathaniel's bibliography that did really excite me, though. The Off-Islanders. Well, okay, if the father of the guy who wrote Jaws wrote a novel called The Off-Islanders, I needed to find out more about that. So I did. Tell me if this plot summary sounds familiar. A Russian sub runs aground on a Cape Cod island towards the end of the summer season, and... Hilarity ensues. So yes, that's the other notable thing about The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. It's based on a book written by the father of the guy who wrote Jaws, which for most people is probably just a really nerdy bit of trivia. 
but it really struck me as profound. So these films actually are related. They are tied by blood, one based on the work of the father, one based on the work of the son. Both works are reflecting on a shared lifetime of summers on Nantucket, of being off-islanders living among, but a little apart from this totally unique islander culture. And as much as they both were transformed for the screen, and they both were changed a lot as they were adapted, that shared history shines through enough that someone watching both movies without knowing about the shared ancestry can intuit that it's there. There is one significant difference between the two films that it's worth mentioning. The Russians Are Coming may be explicitly set in New England, but it was shot primarily in Mendocino, California, one of those Northern California beachside communities that appears in movies all the time, but pretty much never gets to play itself. Actually, it's often been asked to play the part of a New England coastal hamlet, not just in the Nantucket-inspired Russians Are Coming, but also in Nantucket set Summer of 42, horror films The Dunwich Horror and Cujo, and most famously in the mystery series Murder, She Wrote, where it stood in for Cabot Cove, Maine. As we know, Jaws would be different. The aim was to film it in a town that could easily stand in for a northeastern resort community that depended on an influx of summer people because it already was one. Not that that was a hard and fast rule. As we heard earlier, production designer Joe Alves had struck out everywhere he'd been, from Long Island to Maine, and if nowhere in the northeast United States proved suitable, he was more than willing to scout the Azores and Africa for an appropriate location that met the technical needs introduced by the mechanical shark. That came first. If they had to build some shingled cottages in a colonial-style town hall, so be it. I don't want to overly fetishize shooting on location. Firstly, plenty of masterpieces have been shot on sound stages or in cities with generous tax breaks standing in for other cities. And secondly, Jaws is still playing pretend. Amity isn't real. You can't shoot in Amity. But there is something magical about Jaws, about the way that all the things that seemed like problems turned into advantages. The production ran months over schedule, keeping everyone trapped on an island, getting on each other's nerves. <laughs> the script was constantly in flux, with screenwriter Carl Gottlieb incorporating random things he was hearing locals say into pages he was writing the night before they would be performed, and with several crucial scenes relying on local non-actors playing bit parts to just improvise stuff. It could have been a disaster, to say nothing of the freaking mechanical shark that wouldn't work. And instead, it all means that Amity incorporates so much more local flavor than any blockbuster of this scale would be allowed to do today. It's like a fish fillet that was supposed to get a quick sear, but instead it had to marinate overnight in local flavor and then got cooked low and slow. But what local flavor was it marinating in? That question brings us back to that fateful ferry crossing on December 16th, 1973. At Peter Benchley's recommendation, Joe Alves is on his way to Nantucket, hoping to find a location for the movie Jaws, and also, possibly, hoping to meet up with the author's parents, one of whom had already had a film made out of his Nantucket-inspired book. But Alves never makes it to Nantucket. Snow begins to fall, and the ferry has to turn back to Woods Hole on the mainland. Joe Alves doesn't get to try those cucumber and cream cheese sandwiches Marjorie Benchley is so good at making, or ask Nathaniel Benchley what he thought about the Hollywood adaptation of his novel The Off-Islanders. Instead, Alves takes the only ferry that's still running in the snow, a ferry to a much closer island, an island with flat sandy bottoms offshore, and a perfect cove with a two-foot tidal range, and towns with apparently just the right summer resort town that derives 90% of its income in the 12-week summer season look for Jaws, Martha's Vineyard. Part 3. I don't think one of you are familiar with our problems. 
It's remarkable how little some of the places where Jaws was filmed have changed in the intervening 46 years. Because of historic preservation efforts that kicked off around the same time Hollywood came to the island, you can walk down Main Street in Edgartown, or look out towards Menemsha Bight from the fishing village of Menemsha, and feel like you're on Amity Island, and it's 1974, and Quint is about to turn the corner singing a body sea shanty. But appearances can be deceiving. The vineyard today is a very different place from the one Joe Alves came to in December of 1973. Not yet the world-class tourist destination it would soon become, the island, eight miles off the southeast coast of Massachusetts, was both remote and inaccessible enough to provide its 6,000 inhabitants a degree of seclusion suitable to their pastoral temperaments, writes Matt Taylor in his prologue to Jaws, Memories from Martha's Vineyard. According to Taylor, the vineyard was a destination by then, certainly for a seasonal influx of old money wasps and an accelerating migration of retirees, trust fund dropouts, and countercultural drifters. But it wasn't yet the trendy, chic, quote-unquote, hideaway it became and had been becoming when the Clintons started summering there in the 90s. No, visitors who came to the island in the 70s would need to take the island and the islanders on their terms. And those terms hadn't changed much since the vineyard had been a whaling and fishing hub in the 19th century. People on the island worked to make a living, some in the nascent tourism industry, others through farming or fishing or any number of jobs you'd find in a small town or rural outpost. So to answer the question that inspired this episode, no, Martha's Vineyard in 1974 wasn't what I imagined it to be. It wasn't all wealthy blue bloods yachting to their heart's content. It still isn't, a nuance we'll explore soon. It certainly didn't look like the kind of place that would, as producer David Brown humorously put it, pay you to have a shark keep the tourists out. Some of the locals might have considered it, maybe. Islanders' reputation for being wary of off-islanders didn't come from nowhere, but they probably wouldn't have been able to afford it. These were working-class and middle-class people, even if the people making holiday in the island weren't. And actually, many of the off-islanders were working-class and middle-class, too. Oh, sure, there were some celebrities who appreciated the true seclusion of the island, the remoteness, yes, but also the distance the locals kept. Mia Farrow, Walter Cronkite, James Cagney, who'd been coming since the 30s when he'd been one of the first to face the islanders' weariness of strangers, which prompted him to write this poem in 1936. When you give your heart to fair Martha's Isle, that queen of insular sluts, it's like falling in love with a beautiful whore who hates your goddamn guts. More typical of the people migrating to the island at this time was Lee Fierro, who shared nothing in common with Mia Farrow and Jimmy Cagney other than a love for the vineyard and the acting bug. Fierro had forsaken a life as a New York City society dame for the stage, much to her mother's chagrin, working in off-Broadway shows and live television in New York, and then repertory theater in Philadelphia. While in Philly, she had transitioned from performing to teaching performance to teenagers so that she could spend more time with her family. Lee Fierro, her husband Bernie, and her four kids visited the vineyard for the first time in 1965. They enjoyed it so much that over the next few summers, they built their own cabins, and after Fierro had a fifth child, the whole family moved to the island full-time in 1969. That year, the steady increase in visitors that had been occurring since the end of World War II became a deluge. Ferry traffic from the mainland was up by 41,856 passengers and 11,408 cars from 1968. 1969 was also the year Senator Ted Kennedy drove his car into a pond on Chappaquiddick, killing his passenger. This truly put Martha's Vineyard on the map, bringing fame and notoriety to the island, which many people living there didn't want under any circumstances, and which no one wanted to happen under the circumstances that Kennedy created. 
And so Fierro's first few years living on the island were markedly different from the summers that had come before. The peace and quiet was gone, as press from all over the world came to cover the incident and the ensuing inquests. The media circus brought exactly the kind of visitors islanders definitely didn't want, and kept away the privacy-seeking off-islanders that they did want to keep around, if a bit begrudgingly. That's why people were wary of the Jaws crew when they came knocking in early 1974. The vineyard didn't need another disruptive spectacle bringing attention and traffic to the island so soon after the Chappaquiddick incident. But islanders acquiesced because the shooting would be done before the summer season, at least it was supposed to be, and it would bring off-season jobs. And the vineyard, in the midst of an economic recession, needed jobs. As carpenter Marty Milner tells it in Memories from Martha's Vineyard, Before Jaws came along, nobody had any work. We were all living off whatever savings we had from the previous season. At night, everyone would sit at the bar at the Square Rigger in Edgartown and talk about how bad things were. And so, when word got around that a shark movie would be filming on the island and there were opportunities for islanders to help, paid opportunities, people turned up, including Milner, who was brought on as foreman of a crew that would build Quinn's boathouse in Menemsha. And it turned out opportunities weren't limited to behind-the-camera work. Here's the scene on Martha's Vineyard in March of 1974, according to the Vineyard Gazette. Quaint island ripe for shark savagery and big movie stardom. Since news broke that a film crew from Universal Studios would be making a movie on the vineyard during the next two months, a subtle primping has been in the March wind. A few fishermen who are rarely seen in work talks have been hanging around Edgartown's main street with a cultivated crustiness. Waning Shakespeareans crib for an impromptu audition and casually mutter false staff speeches in grocery lines. Archetypal New Englanders develop brooding into a form of showmanship. Lee Fiera was there in the theater on June 20th, 1970, the first time Jaws played on Martha's Vineyard. At the premiere in Oak Bluffs, you couldn't hear anything for the first half of the movie, she recounted in Jaws' memories from Martha's Vineyard, because everyone in the theater was pointing to their friends on the screen. And there she was on screen, in a floral one-piece bathing suit and a floppy yellow sun hat that almost blew away in the wind, and later in funereal black, with a veil covering her face. People were pointing at her, too. The Lee Fierro up on the screen, and the one in the theater. They only settled down during the third act, because there were no people they knew to point out. That's when the three-man hunting party is out on the Orca, assailing and being assailed by the Great White, and the only actors on screen are stars Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, and Robert Shaw. Before the Orca leaves Amity, though, when the stars are on land, they're surrounded by unfamiliar but engaging faces and voices, most of them belonging to people who only have one or two credits on their IMDb, Jaws and maybe a Jaws sequel or a Jaws anniversary special. Pretty much everyone on screen outside of the top-billed cast, that is, the actors who played the Brodies, husband and wife, Hooper, Quint, and Mayor Vaughn, was based out of New England. Some were regional actors who were members of the Boston Screen Actors Guild, like Fritzy Jane Courtney, who was memorable enough as dismissive motel owner Mrs. Taft that she reprised the role in Jaws 2 and Jaws the Revenge. But most of the people on screen were Martha's Vineyard locals, some with acting experience, many with none. Brody's deputy, his secretary, his two kids, actually all the kids, including poor doomed Alex Kintner, the college kid who's too drunk to go skinny dipping, all the dopes in the fishing boat fleet that try to bag the shark, they're all people who are already on the island. Local doctor Robert Nevin, an 11th generation islander, was the first local cast for the movie as Amity's medical examiner, because his wife, Barbara, was the production secretary. 
One morning, he was supposed to be on set at 8 o'clock. Barbara Nevin remembers. And the filmmakers came screaming into the office saying, Where's Dr. Nevin? I told them, He's at the hospital. They said, The hospital? What is he doing at the hospital? I said, You wanted a real doctor? You got a real doctor. Well, I think uh, possibly, uh, yes, a boating That's accident. That's not what you told accident. me over the phone. I was wrong. We'll have to amend our reports. And you'll stand by I'll that? I'll stand by you. There was Lobster Man Donald Poole, who was easy to reel in because he was the father-in-law of location casting assistant Ginny Poole. Her boss, casting director Sherry Rhodes, was actively looking for people like Donald, a jovial old sea captain in his 70s. What I really wanted were actors with that traditional New England-y look. It's a different, weather-beaten look. You see it a lot in the old-time natives of Martha's Vineyard, especially in the farmers and fishermen who have spent their entire lives in the salt and sun and in women who don't care about makeup and moisturizers. Spielberg spent so many of his lunches peppering Donald Poole with questions about his life at sea that someone asked him why he got to spend so much time with Steven Spielberg. To which Poole replied, Who the hell is Steve Spielberg? While a lot of Poole's scenes as Amity Harbor Master Frank Silva were left on the cutting room floor, he makes enough of an impression in his four seconds or so in the spotlight strolling out of his shack, looking every bit the sea captain that he was, silent but beaming, with a pipe dangling out of his mouth, the camera clearly in love with him, that I wrote in my notes, I want to know more about Frank Silva, the harbor master. Making an equally large impression in a small amount of time as the quiet Elmer Fudd-looking dude following Robert Shaw's quint around Amity was fisherman Herschel West, who worked the Menemsha docks with Donald Poole. No family connections to any of the crew this time, West was just a scruffy-looking guy that Sherry Rhodes knew needed to be in Jaws, even though he really didn't want to be in Jaws. When he finally agreed to meet Spielberg, he showed up cleaned up, looking uncomfortable with a fresh shave and spiffy clothes. Rhodes told him there was no need for that. They wanted Herschel West exactly the way he was. We couldn't have found actors anywhere to duplicate the people we found in Menemsha. Their skin was weather-beaten, their hands were almost ruined from all their cuts, scrapes, injuries, the broken fingers. These were men who had worked every day of their lives out in the elements. There's just no way you can weather an actor like that. And then there was the Goliath of a man who played fisherman Ben Gardner, Craig Kingsbury, a true island character who lived about ten lives in his one lifetime and who we'll wait to meet in earnest until the next episode on Quint, since Robert Shaw modeled his performance on Kingsbury's eccentric persona. Perhaps no local had a part more significant than the one tackled by Lee Fierro, who was working as a childbirth educator and who didn't very much care if she got a part in Jaws or not. During her audition for Mrs. Kittner, she was asked to improvise a scene where her son wants to go into the water for a little longer. Mother of five that she was, Fierro found numerous ways to tell him, no, that he was done, until Spielberg insisted that she would have to yes and, saying, Lee, you've, you've got to let him get back in the water eventually, or we don't have a movie. Let me get my ass and go back out in the water. Let me see your fingers. Alex Kintner, they're beginning to prune. Just let me go out a little longer. Just ten more minutes. Thanks. Spielberg was impressed enough by her that she got the part, which she actually turned down, because her character would have to swear. Well, that wouldn't do. And so the part was rewritten, swears removed, so that Spielberg could have Lee Fierro. In Memories on Martha's Vineyard, Jaws production executive Bill Gilmore marvels. We really stuck our necks out by casting so many locals, especially for parts like Mrs. Kintner, 
Normally, given the importance of her scenes to the story and the dramatics of the character, we would have brought an actor in from Los Angeles or New York. But Stephen favored casting as many island people as possible, and they really did a terrific job. Fierro is a particular standout. She's a three-scene wonder, a low-key presence who carries much of the film's pathos and tragedy, potential energy that is unleashed in one slap to our hero's face. Chief Brody? Yes? When Mrs. Kintner strikes Martin Brody, it stops the film's slap-happy momentum dead in its tracks. Her funeral attire a reminder that the stakes aren't a reward or a profitable Fourth of July weekend. The stakes are people's lives. My boy is dead. Her cutting admonishment of the police chief recontextualizes what we've seen. I wanted you to know that. Framing Brody as, to this point in the action, compassionate, but complicit. I'm sorry, Martin. She's wrong. No, she's not. It's a turning point in the film, and it was a turning point in Fierro's life. For as much as she'd been nonchalant about getting back into acting and about participating in Jaws, she took to both enthusiastically for the ensuing decades. She became artistic director of the Island Theater Workshop, writing scripts, composing music, directing, inspiring a love for the theater in generations of young Islanders. She was beloved on the island. And not just because of Jaws, really, hardly because of Jaws at all. Although, whenever the vineyard became Amity again, as it did in 1987 for Jaws the Revenge, as it did for Jaws Fest gatherings in 2005 and 2012, Fierro was ready to be Mrs. Kintner again. People didn't just want her autograph, no, they would ask Lee Fierro to reenact that slap, to slap them, and she would oblige. When Lee Fierro moved off island in 2017 to an assisted living facility closer to her children in Ohio, Hundreds of people gathered for her farewell party, a cross-section of people she'd met and touched and slapped, across 48 years living on Martha's Vineyard. The island had changed a great deal in those 48 years, even if the buildings in the town centers hadn't. The days of buying an affordable lot, building some cabins, and moving the family to the island were over. Martha's Vineyard, like neighboring island Nantucket, has been afflicted by a housing crisis for decades. As the second home market has exploded, people who live on the island year-round have found it harder to live affordably on the vineyard. A 2013 housing needs assessment found that the weekly wage on Martha's Vineyard was 71% of the Massachusetts state average. The median price of a home? Around 54% higher than the state average. This is squeezing out the islander culture that seemed to draw Steven Spielberg to the vineyard. The main street and the fishing village, they could be recreated on a back lot. But he couldn't find a Donald Poole or a Herschel West anywhere but Menemsha. And as important as the influx of summer people is to Islanders, the ever-increasing cost of living that accompanies their ever-increasing enthusiasm for the vineyard's charms is forcing the next generation of Donald Pools, of Herschel Wests and Craig Kingsbury's, Doc Nevins and Lee Fierro's, off the island and onto the mainland. Somewhat counterintuitively, the pandemic seems to be exacerbating this divide. What isn't surprising is that ferry traffic to the island slowing, businesses being forced to close, and jobs disappearing has negatively impacted incomes for wage-earning islanders. What is surprising, but actually not surprising at all if you think about it for a moment, is that the already unfathomably expensive housing market is exploding, as people with means who are going to be staying indoors for a while buy additional homes on the vineyard to increase the amount of indoors they have. The price per square foot in Chilmark, which borders the village of Menemsha, has gone up 30.6% from last year. 
Of course, we need to remind ourselves that the housing crisis is not the most important cost brought on by the pandemic. This is a public health crisis first and foremost, and it's costing us people's lives, including the life of Lee Fierro, who passed in April 2020 at 91 years old in her assisted living facility in Ohio from complications caused by COVID. This was in the early days of the Jaws' pandemic movie discourse, when people were passing around quotes from the mayor of Amity and Hooper and Mrs. Kintner as a way of thinking about the response to COVID, which I can't help but think played some role in the decision of outlets like Variety, Entertainment Weekly, and USA Today to pick up the news of her death. And it's interesting to see the contrast between obituaries run by those publications and the local Martha's Vineyard papers. For the island publications, Jaws was one small chapter in a long life filled with music and drama and laughter and love. For the mainland and mainstream publications, the slap was the story. A life zoomed in on one moment in front of the cameras in 1974, the 40-some-odd years on either side, a bit blurry and out of focus. Which, I get it, but it feels weird to condense such a long, beautiful life down to three scenes and one monologue. But I mean, if you're going to be remembered for one monologue, let it be this one. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week. And you knew it. You knew there was a shark out there. You knew it was dangerous. But you let people go swimming anyway. You knew all those things. But still, my boy is dead now. And there's nothing you can do about it. Epilogue. I'm only trying to say that Amity is a summer town. We need summer dollars. One of the most bracing moments in Jaws comes right after the death of Alex Kintner. After the shark fin, after the little boy is lifted up into the air in a geyser of blood and the panic. After Lee Fierro as Mrs. Kintner holds down her sun hat and shouts, we see the deflated yellow raft wash up on shore with a wave sweeping over it, the water tinged red. And then, with that visual seared in our brains, we hear this. We don't even know that there's a shark around here. Look, I can't argue with you. I can't talk to you. They can deny it all they want. By this point, the town of Amity knows very well that it has a shark problem. And the question becomes what they're going to do about it. And the answer becomes clear pretty quickly as everyone files into the council chambers. They're not going to take the problem seriously. Any special questions? Uh, is that $3,000 bounty on the shark in cash or check? <laughs> I don't think that's funny at all. I'm sorry. Or rather, they're going to take a problem seriously, but it's not going to be the shark. It's going to be the threat posed to Amity's economy if the beaches close. I have a point of view, and I think it speaks for many of the people here. It's not only me, because I have a motel. How do you feel? Uh, I hope they don't close the beach. Let's have some water. Here's the thing. 
As concerning as it is to see Chief Brody's plan to save lives lambasted and neutered, especially considering we know what's coming, panic on the 4th of July, more death and despair, it is worth admitting that the concerns of the citizens of Amity in the face of a lost summer are not invalid. Look, we depend on the summer people here for our very lives. You are not going and to have a summer those unless bitches, you're dealing we're with this problem. We're not only going to have to close the beach, we're going to have to hire somebody. Those to concerns the may not outweigh the life-threatening scourge that's keeping people away. They may blur the lines between lives and livelihoods, but they are serious enough to be taken seriously. It was the beginning of the summer season, and Brody knew that on the success or failure of those 12 weeks, rested the fortunes of Amity for the whole year. Peter Benchley wasn't thinking explicitly of Martha's Vineyard when he wrote that, but what he wrote applied just as well to Martha's Vineyard as it did to Nantucket or Long Island or any other coastal community dotted with summer towns where the population and the economy rise and fall with the temperature. A rich season meant prosperity enough to carry the town through the lean winter. The winter population of Amity was about 1,000, in a good summer, the population jumped to nearly 10,000, and those 9,000 summer visitors kept the 1,000 summer residents alive for the whole year. There was a common, though tacit, understanding in Amity, born of the need to survive. Everyone was expected to do his bit to make sure that Amity remained a desirable summer community. When Steven Spielberg was asked by the Vineyard Gazette before filming started on Jaws what it was that drew him to the story of Amity, and what drew him to shoot that story in Martha's Vineyard, this is what he said. I'm very interested in the idea of a clash between the summery quaintness and relaxed gaiety of a resort and the terror of a sudden force from, really, another world. Mr. Spielberg says he finds the vineyard one of the most relaxing places he has been. The quaintness is right out on the street corners and, and the perfect ground for conflict and incongruous savagery. I wonder reading that if, when Spielberg says incongruous savagery, he's thinking of the shark or of the townspeople. Based on some of the stuff in the film, you could certainly make a case for the townspeople who push children out of the way into shark-infested waters to get to safety, to say nothing of the townwide decision to not close the beach, though he probably means the shark. What I find interesting about Spielberg's reading of the quaint setting is this. Where he sees an idyllic community thrown into conflict by a savage shark, two opposite poles. I see the long-simmering conflicts of a community that's livelihood depends on the illusion of idyllicness, brought to the surface by the arrival of a shark. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I've done too much research on summer towns and summer dollars, and I can't see the ocean for the waves anymore. Or maybe 2020 has just gotten to me, and I can't help but see the worst in people. But when I watch the town hall meeting where Chief Brody proposes closing the beaches and bringing in outside help, a scene absolutely flooded with the faces of real islanders cast to fill out the room and look concerned about the possibility of the beaches closing, I can't see anything but 2020, in spite of the 70s close. Desperation permeates this scene, and fear, but not fear of a shark. The residents of Amity share a fear of oblivion, Economic, but also emotional. The people of Amity flail and convulse in the face of a threat to their way of life, their livelihoods. They'll do anything they can to avoid the one thing they believe they cannot afford. 
a lost summer. Are you going to close the beaches? Yes, we are. We're also planning to bring in some experts from the Oceanographic Institute on the mainland. Only 24 hours. I didn't agree to that. Only 24 hours. 24 hours is like three weeks. Chaos takes hold as that sentiment rings in the air. 24 hours is like three weeks, which sounds like a tweet from 2020 time traveling back into a movie from 1975. And then... The shark hunter appears. A stark contrast to the cartoon shark eating the cartoon boy on the chalkboard behind him. Here is someone who will take the problem seriously. Now we gotta do it quick. I don't bring back the tourists. I'll put all your businesses on a paying basis. But it's not gonna be pleasant. I value my neck a lot more than 3,000 bucks, chief. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for 10. You gotta make up your minds. You wanna stay alive and ante up? You wanna play it cheap? Be on welfare the whole winter. It seemed like these people would do anything to avoid a lost summer. But they're not ready to pay this price. $10,000 for me by myself. Not yet. They will, though. Next episode on iconography, we're going shark hunting with Mr. Quint. Thank you very much, Mr. Quint. We'll, uh, we'll take it under advisement. Mr. Mayor, Chief, ladies and gentlemen. Iconography, which is written and produced by me, Charles Gustine, is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. There's been a new addition to the Hub & Spoke family since the last episode of Iconography, and if you liked this very nautical episode, you're bound to enjoy it. The Briny comes to us from Portland, Maine, where producer Matt Frassica is examining how we're changing the sea and how the sea changes us. The latest episode, Turned Down for Whales, looks at how the pandemic is making our oceans quieter and less stressful for marine wildlife. Maybe the shark in Jaws was just really stressed because of how loud we were making the ocean? Have you ever thought about that? One last thing before I leave you waiting for part two in our series on Jaws. At the top of the episode, I promised my top five discoveries from a summer of surfing the Criterion Channel. These are the five movies out of 182 so far that I'm most glad I discovered. And while they're not on the streaming service anymore, I highly encourage you to hunt them down if you've never seen them, or revisit them if you have. Number five, Fly Away Home. A preteen Anna Paquin bonds with her estranged father, played by Jeff Daniels, over a flock of orphaned geese. I'd always known about this movie, but could have never guessed how much actually watching it would affect me. Number four, Seconds. For me, this was a summer of discovering how much of a boss director John Frankenheimer was. And Seconds, his surreal science fiction downer starring Rock Hudson, was that journey's apex moment. Bonus points for Jaws Mayor Murray Hamilton showing up in an important supporting role. Number three. What's up, Doc? 
There have been like three, four Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt adjacent podcasts this summer. And I mean, when we're talking about movies as good as the Neo Screwball masterpiece, What's Up Doc, there could be more, you know? <laughs> also, I think I'm in love with Barbara Streisand now. Number two, The Big Country. The theme music of this I'd heard before. I played it as part of a Western movie medley and concert band. The movie itself I'd never really heard of until this summer. And now I want to tell everyone about this movie, about Gregory Peck's Placid Calm and Burl Ives' Ornery Honor. And finally, number one, Local Hero. A gentle comedy about a Texas oil man who gets fish out of water in a remote Scotland village. He's trying to persuade the townspeople to sell, but the townspeople are already ten steps ahead of him. I'm not sure any movie has ever been more beautiful, both cinematically and emotionally. It immediately became one of my all-time favorite films. Alright, if you check any of those films out and you like them, I think you're actually obligated to leave Iconography a good review on iTunes. Sorry, I think it's actually in the terms and conditions. Man, we should we should really read those more carefully. But um, but seriously, if you want to talk about those films, or of course talk about Jaws, you can hit me up at Iconography Pod on Twitter or at Iconography Podcast on Instagram. Looking forward to hearing from you, and the next time you hear from me, I'll be ready to deploy a spot-on imitation of Quint. I hope. The Hiroshima bomb. Yeah, still needs work.